Hey folks, quick content warning. This week I'll be talking about real people and the real things that happen to them. That includes descriptions of sexual assault and murder. If you need to skip this one, no worries. We will be back to fiction next week. Do whatever you need to feel safe and okay. That's what I care about most. Love you guys. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. First and foremost, I have a favor to ask you. If you could please go rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, it would really help me out. It gives the show more visibility to new users so our community can keep growing. Thank you so much. Also, to new listeners, I am speaking in a low voice because this podcast is to help soothe those who happen to find the regular meditations or ASMR is not exactly what they're looking for. I will continue with this soft voice for the entirety of the episode, and there will be layered soothing binaural sounds as well. So if low or soft voices are off-putting to you, then I suggest turning off the episode now. No need to leave a review about how soft voices make you want to punch a wall. I'll save you from all the quote-unquote cringe. (laughs) I wish you luck in your search for the perfect horror podcast for you. This episode is being pre-recorded because right now, as you know, I am in Oregon visiting my brother. He loves spooky stuff just as much as I do, and he's always telling me about Oregon's ghosts and all the cool old little ghost towns around there, so I thought I would do an episode on a few of them. Oh, and I'm going to be throwing in some just kind of random soothing sounds just to keep the calming flow of the episode. So here we go. Let's start with the murder of Thelma Taylor. She was a 15-year-old sophomore at Roosevelt High School in Portland. On August 5, 1949, she was waiting for a bus in the St. John's neighborhood, intending to travel to the nearby town of Hillsboro to get a summer job picking beans. Uh, other sources I found said she was waiting on one of the berry picking trucks, hoping they would give her a ride so she could earn some extra money. So, one of the two. While waiting, Thelma was approached by Morris Leland, a 22-year-old ex-convict, who coerced her into going to a spot under the St. John's Bridge. He attempted to rape her, but discovered she was a virgin, and instead threatened her and forced her to stay the night with him under the bridge. This is what's weird. A lot of sources I found say that she just stayed the night with him, and I'm sure it was by force. They kind of made it sound like they had a sleepover together. It was really weird. Anyway, the next morning, Thelma could hear workers nearby and began to scream for help. According to Morris's confession, he hadn't planned to kill her, but when she started screaming, it came to me like that. And that's exactly what he said. With the snap and everything, I read the court documents. <laughs> so, he proceeded to beat her with a pipe and stab her to death. He threw the pipe and the knife in the river gathered up his cigarette butts, wiped his prints off her lunch pail, and ran away. Her body was discovered August 11, 1949, in a shallow grave under some driftwood. Morris was arrested for vehicle theft and then also confessed to killing Thelma. He was executed by gas chamber January 9, 1953. Locals say that Thelma still haunts the area where she was murdered. Some have seen her waiting for her ride, and others say that on a warm summer day, 
drifting in with the warm breeze, are the sounds of Thelma screaming as she is being brutally murdered. The screams are so loud that police have been called several times about a woman being assaulted by the bridge. When they arrive to investigate, they don't find a thing. Let's move on to Lafayette. Lafayette has a history of witches and the curses they allegedly wrought over the town. Let's begin with Richard Marple and his mother Anne. Richard arrived in Lafayette in 1885. He and his wife Julia and his mother Anne all came from Corvallis. Richard was hoping to find employment. Lafayette was said to have numerous job opportunities at the time. Despite all the job openings around town, though, Richard just could not find anyone to hire him. So, he decided to turn to robbery. The local sheriff was sure that the 27-year-old was responsible for several robberies in the town, but could never catch him in the act or gather enough evidence. Well, Richard went and got cocky. Several people overheard him ridiculing a local storekeeper named David I. Corker, saying that it would be easy for him to rob. I mean, he wasn't wrong. Richard was young and strong. Corker was almost 60 and nearly deaf, and he ran the business completely alone. On November 1st, 1886, Corker's body was found in his store. It had been hacked up with an axe. The sheriff immediately went to Marple and brought him in for questioning. Marple denied it, but also talked badly of Corker during the entire interrogation. At Richard's home, they found a bloodied shirt and a piece of bloody paper in one of his pants pockets. Richard claimed that the evidence had been planted. His wife and mother swore to the sheriff that he had an alibi and that he had been somewhere else that night. No matter, on April 9th, 1886, he was convicted of first-degree murder. They even tried to charge his mother as an accomplice, but evidence was flimsy and the charges were dropped. Marple was led up to the wooden stockades, and as the black hood was placed over his head by the executioner, he yelled, Murder! May God judge you all! Like many hanging executions in the day, this did not go as smoothly as in the movies. Richard's neck didn't break. It took 18 excruciating minutes for him to be strangled to death by the noose. During this horrific event, Anne, Richard's mother, was heard screaming curses, saying her son was innocent and threatening to burn down the entire town for the unjust death of her precious boy. Anne was known to the townsfolk by a certain term that, in current times, we know to be offensive to Romani people. With that term came the idea that she was also a witch. After Richard's death, Lafayette suffered several disastrous fires. According to an article I found, they believe the last one was in 1928, 41 years after the hanging. Before the curse, Lafayette had existed for 40 years with no major fires. And these were major fires. One of them took down the entire business district. An extra little funny, sort of tragically funny fact. According to Richard's cellmate, right before his hanging, he confessed to him that he had, in fact, committed the murder. 
Well, on top of that curse, there's a ghostly woman who haunts the local cemetery, said to be a witch who was hanged sometime in the 1850s in Lafayette. It isn't Anne. She died many years later in a different town and happy despite losing her son years before. Whoever this woman is who haunts the cemetery is one scary bitch. Several people and ghost hunters over the years have spotted her just standing on the outskirts of the main burial area. Oh, and she doesn't just stand there. She laughs. Some sort of cacophonous laugh, they say, that it feels like she's laughing at the people who are interred in the cemetery. A woman who was new to the area went with her husband in June of 2002 to see what all the fuss was about. When they got back home and reviewed their videotape, they were startled to hear a woman's voice moaning, Run home in the playback. Others who have ignored the laughter and were brave enough to stand their ground have then been chased away after the usually motionless witch then flies at them with razor-sharp talons. These people say they have the scars on their back to prove it, but to be honest, I couldn't find a single picture of any scars online. If anyone knows where to find pictures of these, please let me know. I would love to see them. Many of you may be familiar with the term being shanghai If not, let me tell you about it. shanghai is the practice of kidnapping people to serve as sailors by coercive techniques such as trickery, intimidation, or violence. That's the Wikipedia version anyway. Well, Portland at one time was known as the Shanghai capital of the world. They even have what's known as the Shanghai Tunnels. The Shanghai Tunnels were originally just an easy way for businesses and restaurants and bars to retrieve their supplies from the ships that came in. The tunnels were connected by various businesses' basements and led down to the shore. The people who did the Shanghaiing would usually drug their victims and pass them through trapdoors that led to the tunnels. When they woke up, they were too far from the shore to swim back, and they were trapped. The practice didn't only happen to men. Women, too, were victims of this practice and sold into sex slavery. If they were to become pregnant, or when they began to age, God forbid, they were usually killed. They offer tours of the tunnels today, and people have said they've heard crying, talking, even screaming. Experts believe that most of the hauntings in the tunnel are residual, meaning that the hauntings are just a result of the expelled energy that occurred there, and they play out as sort of a loop over and over again. Others believe that not all of the hauntings are residual, and that some of the intelligent spirits are those of the victims who don't understand how they came to be in the tunnels, and are forever seeking a way out. Which brings me to Old Town Pizza and Brewing. It's built directly on top of the old Shanghai tunnels. In 1880, two lumber barons built the Merchant Hotel. Old Town Pizza sits in what was the original lobby of the hotel. The Merchant Hotel catered to some higher class visitors to Portland, but oddly sat in what was known as a seedier part of town, and offered the services of various sex workers. As you remember from earlier, unfortunately, these women were not always sex workers by choice. There was a thriving sex trafficking market, and 
One victim of this disgusting trade was a woman named Nina. Now, I've read a couple of different reasons for why poor Nina met her tragic fate. The first is that she was drugged and was another victim of an attempted shanghaiing. The other is that a group of missionaries, in an attempt to clean up the quote-unquote sin of the area, convinced her to provide them with information on certain upstanding members of society in exchange for helping her escape from her life of forced prostitution. Both stories end the same way. Nina was then found dead at the bottom of an elevator shaft in the hotel. It's thought that someone pushed her. Who that was exactly was never found out. But as we all know, sex workers have, even in recent times, been considered the less dead. People who society chooses to ignore or even downright despise. And their deaths often go uninvestigated, especially in the early lawless days of Portland. After her death, her name mysteriously appeared carved into one of the bricks in the elevator shaft. And Nina never left the Merchant Hotel. Since her death, people have smelled her sweet perfume, heard her voice, and have even spotted her wandering the basement in a black dress. Now, let's move on to the Organ Caves Chateau and their resident ghost, Elizabeth. The Chateau is a gorgeous lodge located in the Organ Caves National Monument and Preserve in Southern Oregon. The Chateau is a six-story lodge that was built in 1930. Apparently, it's a beautiful place, and I even found a review from TripAdvisor, written in 2005, confirming that it is indeed haunted. I'll spare you the part about how the food isn't as good as it was in 2004, and just read to you this excerpt. The chateau itself is an interesting place with an interesting history. But there are rooms upstairs, and one in particular, that is haunted. I have stayed at the chateau twice, once in one of the rooms on the lower floors, and once in one of the upstairs rooms, the one adjacent to the haunted room. And I will tell you, I am happy to have been next door and not in the haunted room. To know that you are on the top floor of a building, yet to hear the tread of human footsteps pacing above your head and the crying of what sounds like a child outside of your window, very strange. I am wondering if the person who wrote the one-star review may have been booked into the haunted room. Blood on a towel and a slimy bathtub? Most bizarre. Like I said before, the most famous ghostly guest at the hotel is a weeping blonde woman named Elizabeth. According to legend, Elizabeth was on her honeymoon with her new husband at the chateau. At some point during their stay, Elizabeth walked in on him locked in a sweaty and naked embrace with a chambermaid who worked at the chateau. It's said that Elizabeth then went to the nearest window and immediately threw herself out of it falling to her death. Guests say they still see poor Elizabeth, dressed in blue, wandering the halls of the hotel. Current maids at the hotel say she is still angry at anyone who wears that uniform because she frequently terrorizes them while they try to clean the rooms. On top of seeing her ghostly apparition, she also slams doors, unmakes beds, and throws towels on the floor. If you ever venture to the chateau, 
asked to see something called the Big Book, where they have a picture of Elizabeth's ghost, her blonde hair in curls, and a mournful look on her face. Also in the area is supposedly a yeti that dismembers people. I don't know as much about that, but apparently it's a big place to haunt for Sasquatch and the yeti, which are two different things, I guess. I'm so sorry. I'm not very good at cryptids, and I apologize to any cryptozoologists who I just highly offended. <laughs> but anyway, apparently there's a yeti that dismembers people there. So check it out, you know. This next one is one I'm surprised I missed during my lighthouse episode. The Tillamook Rock Light in Oregon. This is definitely one my brother told me about, and he was so excited to tell me about this. Now, not as many people can say if this one is truly haunted, but it is majorly creepy and interesting, and you'll see why no one can really say if it is haunted or not. So, in 1878, Congress decided that this particular rock called Tillamook Head in Oregon needed a lighthouse. They appropriated $50,000 for it, and everyone said, Oh, we can't build it there. It's too high up, and with the fog, the light will never be visible to the ships. So, they decided to go with Tillamook Rock, a literal, very small rock formation just off the coast. Head of the project was H.S. Wheeler, who determined that it would be impossible to build a lighthouse there. He reassessed and decided that, okay, it's not impossible, but we definitely need more money. Also, it's probably still impossible. Well, after he asked for more money, they brought in a third guy. So a third assessment was ordered, this time by a guy named John Trewavas, I think that's how you pronounce it, who had already built the very impressive Wolf Rock Lighthouse in England. Well, John said he could do it, even if that other bozo couldn't. John was promptly overtaken by a wave on his very first visit and swept out to sea. His body was never recovered. They bring in a third guy, who manages to get the thing built, despite the fact that no one wanted to work for him after hearing that a death had already occurred there. So in early January 1881, when the lighthouse was almost finished, tragedy struck again, and much harder than the first time. A ship called the Lupatia was caught in a thick fog and high winds. They got so close to the shore of the lighthouse that the workers on shore said they could hear the panicked crew of the ship and immediately attempted to place lanterns in the unfinished tower. They also lit a bonfire trying to signal to the ship that they were only 600 feet from the rocks. The ship seemed to right itself and disappeared into the fog. The men on shore could no longer hear panicked cries and they breathed a sigh of relief. Until the next day, when the bodies of all 16 crew members washed up on shore. The only survivor was the crew's dog. The lighthouse suffered a lot of damage over the years and officially shut down operation in 1957. It was such a pain and had literally become the most expensive lighthouse in the U.S. to operate. The land was sold, and then sold again, and eventually some realtors created the Eternity at Sea Columbarium, where you could choose to store your loved one's ashes. The company would give the deceased who rested there the flowery name of honorary lighthouse keepers. Well, 
that company went under in 1999. And the rock is still so difficult to access that there are still urns sitting out there. The new owners can hardly access the land even by helicopter, and that's only at certain times of the year. So, there's the story of how a bunch of dead people came to rest in a lighthouse off the coast of Oregon. For the last part of the show, I have something to read to you. This isn't about Oregon, the state, but it's about its namesake, the Oregon Trail. I stumbled on a ghost story. It was told to Charles Dawson in 1912, and he recorded it. If you don't know much about the Oregon Trail, or you only know what they told you in the fifth grade, or if you're from another country, I highly recommend the book, The Indifferent Stars Above. Oftentimes, parts of or whole families would just go missing, or starve or die from disease off in the wilderness, never to be heard from again, only for their bones to be discovered years later. Even the infamous Donner Party, for many years after that, was sort of a curious destination for passersby on the trail. You could still visit the scattered bones of those crazy cannibals. So here is an actual ghost story from just after that time. A Ghost Story on the Oregon Trail by Charles Dawson in 1912, told by an old settler in Jefferson County, Nebraska. In the late 1860s, my wife and I, with our bunch of tow-headed youngsters, were headed westward, traveling by ox team in a canvas-topped wagon bound for Nebraska. In response to the solicitations of my father, who had settled there a few years previously, crossing the Missouri River in the early days of spring at St. Joseph, we joined one of the first caravans of emigrants going westward over the old Oregon Trail. Traveling over the wonderful prairies and through the rich valleys of eastern Kansas, we had our ideas of the great American desert rudely but pleasantly shattered. In due time, we reached our destination and encamped on the tract of land that had been selected for us, which was a well-timbered and watered body of land lying along a spring-fed stream that ran back into a valley which, which was flanked by bluffs capped by ledges of sandstone. As the first tints of green began to appear in the landscape, it was a wonderful sight to witness the unfolding of such picturesque scenery, the likes of which we had never seen before. Our new home lay about halfway between the old Oregon Trail and the Little Blue River, but this is all I will tell you, for ghosts and their haunts should not be too definitely located, as it might spoil their charms or veracity if there be any. We immediately commenced the building of a home, and, with the aid of my relatives and neighbors, contrived to erect a habitable log cabin, a one-room affair with a loft above, a clapboard roof, mud and stick chimney, and a stone fireplace at one end. Compared with our previous places of habitation and modes of living, this seemed, at first, to be very primitive and almost unendurable. But before long, we grew to regard this homely little log cabin as the coziest place it had been our pleasure to reside in. With the coming of the warm days of spring, we broke out the little flats of land along the creek bottom and planted them with corn, potatoes, melons, etc. Gardens were made, and we entered into the cultivation of our promising crops, hoping to reap an abundance of our needs. Nature had by now fully bedecked the whole panorama with a wonderful profusion of foliage, blossom, and color, 
Our little world seemed to be filled to overflowing with promise and happiness. Strawberry time had come. The hillsides were covered with the patches of this red, luscious fruit. On Sunday morning, my wife and I, light of heart, arm in arm, set out to roam the hillsides to gather a pail full of strawberries. We were soon in the midst of a profusion of strawberries, so plentiful, full, and ripe on all sides of us that we ran here and there, trampling underfoot many berries in our greed to secure the nicest ones. Our pail was soon full to the brim, and our fingers and lips stained from picking and eating, until we were so full we had to stop. Then, feeling the tire of contented satisfaction, we sat down upon a convenient rock, lazily viewing the surrounding scenery, resting before we would attempt our homebound journey. With half-closed eyes, lying back on the big shaded ledge of stone, my thoughts were dwelling on the incidents of the short past, in which we had left the comforts of civilization and taken up our abode in this land of promise, thinking of how content we were. Just as I began to conjecture the future, I was aroused by an exclamation by my wife, who was now pointing across the rock-walled ravine to a springy spot, shaded by scattered clumps of underbrush. Brushing aside the sleepy tangles of my eyes, I noted the cause of her excitement, which I first thought might be Indians. Underneath and in tangles of leaf and stem, quite in contrast in the rich background of green, were berries, strawberries of great size and blood-red color, rivaling even the choicest of the same ones we had seen in the gardens of our eastern homes. Leaving our already filled pail, we hastened over to view the wonderful sight. Picking and eating the first few that we came to, we decided to take some home in my old hat and in my wife's apron. So, with many noises of wonder and surprise, we filled these articles. As I strode through a thick tangle of brush, in leaving the patch, my foot caught on an object which threw me to the ground, and on turning over, I found at my feet the skull of a human being. Leaping up, I rushed out of the thicket, almost completely unnerved at my ghastly find. My wife, who had witnessed my stumble and quick leap up, ran back towards me, inquiring with alarm the cause of this unusual action. Together we walked back, where I pointed to the eyeless bare skull that was apparently grinning at us from this moldy, moss-covered retreat from which my foot had ruthlessly torn him but a moment before. Proceeding to the thicket to investigate more fully, we found that underneath the leafy and molding foliages of the past seasons, which had covered their bodies, were the bones of many other persons. In fact, our strawberry patch had been the burial ground of the unknown dead. My wife and I, stilled by the presence of the dead, stood with bowed heads and silently offered up prayers to him on high, who alone could give the solution of this mystery. Glancing up, I met the gaze of my wife, and my old hat was overturned as the corners of her apron were dropped and the berries spilled on the ground. For we both knew, without further questioning, what had caused the berries to be so big and red. Then, we made a thorough search thereabout for the bones of the unknown dead, faithfully gathering the bones as they lay, endeavoring to give each skull its own and full complement of bones. Finally, we felt that this duty had been performed, and the result was twelve skeletons. We judged were a party of emigrants of men, women, and children. 
After considerable labor, a grave was dug, the bones placed within, and filled up with earth and stones, covering the top to mark and protect the grave. Thoroughly tired by our toil, we wended our way homeward, conscious that we had fulfilled our duty to those poor unfortunate beings by giving them at least a burial. After supper, we gathered on the doorstep in the twilight of the evening, feeling content and at peace, when there came an uncanny, weird moan or cry, like that of a woman or child in the depth of anguish or despair. Listening in awe, I awaited the repetition of that mournful sound. Soon it came, now in the fringe of the trees about the cabin, then in the waist-high corn. Swiftly recalling the incidents of the day, I tried to assure myself that it was not real, but this was but the result of a befuddled mind, just imagination. But the children were now questioning us as to the cry, and upon receiving non-committal answers, and perhaps reading our faces, they grew frightened and began to cry. To assert myself and to allay their fears, I arose and said to my wife, Hand me my rifle and I will go down there and shoot that old owl, tree toad, or whatever it may be. Leaving my wife and child on the porch, I proceeded to search about the growing corn, around the barn, and all through the nearby underbrush, but without result, although I seemed to be following the voice from point to point. Finally, it seemed to be at the cabin. Hastening there, I found that my family had fled within and barred the door. Undaunted, I continued the search, following the clues from where I heard the voice. After vain attempts, which led me to the roof, around and underneath the cabin, I too was frightened and went into the cabin. There was not much sleep for us that night, for we could hear the cries of our unearthly visitor at frequent intervals, until the dawn of the morning. Night after night, we had much the same experience until we grew accustomed to it, and we were but little disturbed. Our neighbors joined with us on several occasions to find the mysterious visitor, but despite the most exacting vigils and search, we gave it up, for not one single object or reason could be found that might be suspected of making the nightly occurring sounds, which the neighbors dubbed the Lost Woman Ghost. The summer wore on, succeeded by the bountiful autumn harvests. We should have been happy and content, but the nightly visitor had worn on our nerves, so, after the harvest had been gathered, I was only too glad to sanction the wife's suggestion that we go and live with my father down on the little Blue River for the winter, as it was too lonesome away up here by ourselves. We spent the long winter down there, hunting and trapping, returning occasionally to see if everything was all right at our homestead, but never staying overnight, so we did not know if our unwelcome guest had departed or not. With the opening days of spring, we moved back, for our, our crops needed to be planted and tended, and the first night of our return was celebrated by the usual performance of the unseen voice. Of course, this was annoying, but what could we do? Then there was no harm resulting, so we settled down, accepting the situation as best we could. Strawberry time came again, and we started out once more to search the hillsides and ravines for big red berries. Our wanderings brought us to the burial place of the unknown party of people we had found a year ago. Here we stood, 
for a moment with bared heads in reverence, swiftly recalling the incidents of their past as we knew of them, praying that we might in some way learn who they were, so their relatives might know of their fate. And as we realized the improbability of this, we turned away with dimmed eyes and continued to ascend the hill. Upon reaching the top, we sat down on a large, flat boulder to rest. The whole panorama lay spread out at our feet, and across the ravine to our right was a hillside, almost mountainous in appearance, cut and broken by irregular rock-filled canyons or gorges, down which trickling spring-fed streams flowed. The rock-strewn hillside was covered with straggling growths of dwarfed oaks and hackberry trees, with the hill itself rising high to the blue skyline, capped with a heavy ledge of brown sandstone, which was cracked and fissured deeply with dark recesses and many overhanging shelves, which suggested ideal retreats for wild animal life. As we searched with our eyes, every part of its face for some new wonder or formation, a ghastly sight came to our vision. The skeleton of a human being, on closer investigation, we found it to be that of a woman, huddled in a crouched, squatting position, back against the wall of a cavern-like place, seemingly as though she had taken refuge there, only to be found, and had raised her arms to ward off the blow that had stilled her life. Tenderly, we gathered up the bones and carried them down to the burial place, and interred them with the rest, whom we judged to have been her companions. The afternoon was spent in search for others that might be lying unburied in the hillsides, but the search proved fruitless, our only other find being a few piles of fire-warped wagon irons and charred woodwork, near which lay bones of oxen, many having the wooden yokes still around their necks. A few arrows were found scattered about in these piles of bones, so we knew this was the work of the Indians. In the twilight of that evening, I sat upon the broad doorstep of our cabin, thinking of all these things, the part that we had played, and who these people might have been. Then came the thought, could there be any connection between them and the ghostly visitor? If so, perhaps it would give me an answer tonight. Though I waited and meditated long into the night, I was in one way disappointed, for the voice did not come that night and never again afterward. So, to me, the mystery has deepened as the years have gone by. Was this the spirit of the murdered woman beseeching me to bury her bones beside those who we had previously buried, who, no doubt, had met a similar fate? I hope so. And if this gave rest to the soul, let it be the end. Thanks for listening. Sorry for the slightly short episode, you guys. I just really ran out of time before my next trip and didn't want to just cram subpar stuff together for you or you know the alternative was no episode at all which would have also been terrible so I hope this was okay I hope you all have a lovely week I will be back next week maybe by then I'll have seen one of Oregon's ghosts you never know if you want to follow the show on social media you can follow me at scare you to sleep on twitter and instagram you can also follow my personal Instagram at Shelby B. Scott. I'll probably be faced or adding to my Instagram stories and uploading pictures from my journey and my trip if you want to see those. Join the Facebook group for some fun community stuff. Facebook.com slash groups slash scare you to sleep. Support me by using my offer codes from my sponsors. 
I always leave them in the show notes. Also, I just want you guys to know that I have refused sponsors before. I don't just spout nonsense for cash. It is for cash, not gonna lie, but it isn't nonsense. (laughs) For instance, this week, I really, truly believe in the Third Love brand, and I actually wear it, and I love them. And also, it's getting hot. Head to my Teespring store and grab an SYTS tank top to keep cool. I'll be wearing mine. I'll leave the link in the show notes. I think that's all. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.